Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. And now, friends, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to two places. Now, we're not going to get to the text until we're about knee deep into some thoughts today. And then we're going to reach over for the text to be our buoy, to be our life raft. So I want you to turn there, however. The first place is in your favorite book and mine, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10, and hold that place. And then you can reach over into the New Testament and find your way to 2 Timothy 1. Leviticus chapter 10 and 2 Timothy 1. And now let's prepare the mind and the heart with a word of prayer. God, in this moment, we recognize that so many of the moments that have passed this week have come and gone with barely a moment's notice. And we confess to you that it is likely, in fact, it is it's probable that you have attempted to pursue us, to be seen and known and felt by us, to be experienced by us, and yet, because of things, and because of distractions, because of necessary energies being spent in a thousand different directions, we may have missed you all completely. But not now. If for no other moment, Right now, you have our complete attention. We yield our mind's attention and our heart's affection to you. Because we suspect that an encounter with you is everything that we need. And we know that you are shaping us to become people in the world that actually transforms the world we cannot do that until you have transformed us. So we gather into this place from a thousand different directions and with 10,000 different experiences that have shaped this moment, we are aware of the brokenness of this world. We, we anguish over both public and private moments of trauma and suffering and trouble. In the wake of the news of another mass shooting and in the wake of news that some of us in this room will barely even whisper to the neighbor next to us, to the right or left. We all bring into this room the need of transformation. So we pray that you would do in us what only you can do. So come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
Amen. So here we are in part 18 of an ongoing conversation about what it means to be human a sermon series on how to be human. And we've been attempting to marvel with what scripture promises about the character and nature of our species, that we are, as we're told, created in the very image and likeness of God. And I feel like this morning, I need to back up a little bit and fix something. 18 weeks we've been starting this way and I'm reminding you that you, despite your brokenness or despite the woundedness you bear in your visible and invisible bodies, that you bear the image of God and it's been great. I've been telling you these things and and I've been telling you the truth about it too. Can we just admit though that sometimes we hear some truths so frequently that they blur into a kind of elastic consciousness and we barely even pay attention to the gravity, to the weight of it all. I have said to you that you are... You're made in the image of God. And sometimes we hear that as a nice, comforting, soft, tame, domesticated kind of compliment. Oh, well, thank you. You are too. You know? Now, you're made in the likeness of God. Oh, me, thanks. You too. It's as if we hear that promise from Scripture as a way to somehow just make us feel better about the brokenness of life, that there is still in you the imprint of God's DNA. And it's true. But lest we forget, I remind you, my sisters and my brothers, that the God in whose image we are made throughout scripture is referred to as a fire, a wild and untamable, uncontainable fire, an infinite, ineffable fire that blazes with intensity. And you and I are made in The image of a God who is known as fire. In Genesis, we're told that he comes to a man who thinks his life is over and he shows up in the form of a a smoking oven and a flaming torch and calls Abram to a new existence in him. In, In Exodus, he goes to a man who thought his life was over because of what he had done and he shows up in the form of a flaming bush and calls Moses to become liberator of people throughout Leviticus. We're told that his presence is known as long as they see the smoke coming from the tabernacle and the fire of God blazing on the altar. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he's the one who is described as the God who protects them by day with a cloud. And by night, a pillar of fire in Malachi and Zechariah. He's the one who's introduced to us as a kind of refiner's fire, as if the life of you could be plunged into the refiner's fire and all the dross and impurities could fall clean to your feet and you, the silver of you, could shine as if he sees his own reflection in you, this God of Fire. When John the Baptist shows up and they say to John the Baptist, you must be the one, right? You're the one. You're the Messiah who has come to set us free. He says, no, not me. I baptize with water, but there is one coming. There is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in the book of Acts, 
cowering in the darkness and the coolness of a secret room. Disciples, for fear of their lives, are visited by the Spirit who shows up like the sound of a mighty rushing wind and shows up with tongues of fire to empower them to say and do and go in ways they had never imagined. And in Hebrews, we're told that God is the one who is an all-consuming fire. And you are made in that image. That means that within you is the fire of God. Within you is burning a fire that wants to set your life ablaze with meaning and purpose and hope. Yeah. But the trouble is, the fire of God in you is the very thing that can make our life beautiful or brutal. The image of God like a fire in you can make your life beautiful or brutal. In the words of Ronald Rollheiser in his work called Coping with the Divine Fire Within, I want you to hear these words. I'm just gonna read it directly so that it captures your heart the way it captured mine this week. And I want you to see if somewhere in you something wakes up and is embraced by something that he says about the fire that is in you. If that same fire is inside us, and it is, then there are divine appetites inside us too. Appetites that are not ever satiable in this life. There's a divine restlessness written right in our DNA, a restlessness. And that divine fire is, a, is at the root of most of what is problematic in our lives. Grandiosity, jealousy, rage, egotism, our incapacity to be satisfied, our constant longing for more, our restless ambitions, our pathological complexities, our greed, and our propensity for addiction. It's difficult to live in this world and be satisfied or, or humble or chaste or not jealous of others. It's difficult too. To have to share this world with six billion others who are just as special as we are. Something in our very makeup wants always to stand out, to be recognized as unique, to own the world and to, to be acknowledged as godly. No wonder there are so many jealousies and wars on this planet. But this divine fire is also at the root of all that is good in us. When we have the divine fire inside of us, it's, it's also impossible to be satisfied with mediocrity, with sin, with lack of meaning, with, with only this world and, and what's second best and, and with anything less than a full surrender in love to all that is good, to others, the world, God. 
When we're in the image of God, it's impossible not to go through life and be relentlessly driven to search for love and to search for God. Being in the image of God is our greatest blessing and our greatest struggle. Because of it, we search for meaning, give our lives to each other, create magnificent works of art and bow in worship to God. But because of it, we also spend too many sleepless nights are often furiously jealous of each other and too often see others as rivals give in to rage and murder each other. It's not a simple thing to carry infinity in a finite body and a finite world. St. Augustine summarized it all in one line. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. My friends, this morning, I am compelled to speak for just a few minutes more with you, especially on a day when our consciousness is elevated among some who are graduating and launching into life. I want to speak for a little while on playing with fire. Playing with fire. Now, to do that, we got to know something about what fire is made of, and so you know what it takes to make a good fire. I just want to put it out before you that it takes the spark, it takes the fuel, and it takes letting the air get to it. So first, let's talk about the spark. So, you know, Baptist people, we came from a long line of peculiar people like ourselves. And on the family tree, we share a branch with the Quakers, and the Quakers are they who describe the soul in a way that I can get my head around. They say that inside every human being, every mortal on the planet has the divine spark. The divine spark. Now, the divine spark is that part of you that is from God. It's the part of you that shares essence with God. God created you in the image of God and in the likeness of God, and that means encoded in your very essence, encoded in your very DNA is a part of God. And it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's holy, and you didn't put it there. And you can't take it away. But the divine spark is that part of you that if I could put it in a way that sounds a little, a little abrasive, it's the part of you that can act like God. It's that part of you that makes you hungry for something. That makes you so thirsty for something that you chase after it. The spark of God is that thing that makes you behave like God, like, like pursuing something, giving your life to it, creating something. It's that part of you that looks like the God who pursues, sacrifices himself for, becomes intimate with. And every time you find yourself falling in love, desiring a new change, 
Every time you find yourself creating or imagining, and as you daydream, you imagine forth worlds that do not yet exist. That is part of the image of God in you. It is the divine spark. And that spark is in all of us. Now, as you think about the spark that is in you, the warning I want to give is that some of you may think that the spark is not in you, that it may be in others. Or maybe the world has been cruel enough to you that you have convinced yourself that the spark, whatever spark you may have had, has been put out, has been extinguished. But I'm trying to tell you that the world you live in that hurt you, the world that you live in that has been cruel to you, the world that can seem dank and dark and void of light and certainly the coolness of no heat nearby, you need to understand the spark is in you as well because the spark I'm talking about, the spark of God, this world didn't ignite and this world cannot snuff out. But the trouble is it takes fuel to spark a fire. Now, I know that some of you grew up singing an old song. I don't even have to tell you what it is. What is it? It don't, no, this is a lot of mine, no. It only takes a spark to do what? To get a fire going. Somebody's singing, it only There we go, nice. Well done, well done. Great song, I got the point of it. The point of it was you can be a spark. You can somehow pass on the thing that has come to you and we can pass this on and light the world up for Christ and it's great, great message, I believe it. The only problem with the song is that it's kind of not true. I hate to rain on the GA parade, GAs. The trouble is you can't make a fire with just a spark. The fire takes some other things to make it happen. It takes some fuel. So can I talk for just a moment about the fuel? Because in you is the spark of God that can ignite your life to blaze for purpose and love and grace and mercy, but it takes fuel. And depending on what fuel you use to fuel your fire, that determines what kind of fire you have. So several years ago, I don't know, I think maybe Jackson may have been sixth grade, maybe. He's out cutting the grass, trying to earn some money. He's cutting the front yard. He's sitting right here, so I gotta be careful. He's cutting the grass, and as he's cutting the grass, my wife is on the telephone on the driveway in a place where she can't see him cutting the grass, and she's on the phone with her sister, which is another story altogether. When my wife talks on the phone with her sister on the porch or outside, my neighbors know more about my life than I want them to know. And because there is, there is no filter when she's talking to her sister and there's no volume control. And I have to come out from time to time and say, babe, the neighbors don't need to know about your mother's colonoscopy, turn it down a little bit. But that's another sermon altogether. She's in a place in the driveway where she can't see him. He's cutting the grass and the lawnmower stops because he notices in the front of our yard there is this fire ant hill. And lucky for us, just weeks before, Jackson had gone to a camp in Tennessee that called Man Camp. 
where they learn how to change oil in a car, change a tire, do, you know, man things, including kill fire ants. So this counselor, this, I don't know, this 15 or 16 year old counselor taught these boys that to get rid of a fire ant hill, that's all you need is this. You soak it with gasoline and light it on fire. So Laura's on the phone talking about all kinds of things and she sees running down our street, I see we have a neighbor across the street, he's a police officer and thank God for the men and women in blue. And he's running down the street with a fire extinguisher yelling fire. She looks around, hang on just a minute, and our yard is engulfed. Nobody was hurt except the ants. We haven't had fire ants in the better part of a decade now. But I say that to you as a reminder that it matters what kind of fuel you put on your spark. Because depending on the fuel you choose to, to fuel the spark that God has already given you, you can have a life of absolute fire or absolute destruction. Yeah, yeah. What, what fuel fuels the spark of God in you? So there's this great story in the book of Leviticus You'll remember that God has liberated those slaves out of Egypt and now he is forming them, shaping them by teaching them a way to reorder their life in a way that gives life and sustains life and makes life under this new relationship with Yahweh. And so when you're reordering life after you've been disordered, it sometimes takes some rigidity. So that's why you and I grimace a little bit when we read Books like Leviticus of how strict and rigid and how hardcore it is. So you, you do these things, but don't do those. You wear this kind of clothing, but not that kind of clothing. Eat this kind of food, but don't eat that kind of food and so on. And in the same way, they had constructed the tabernacle with just as much rigidity and order. There were places where you stand and where you don't stand. There are clothing, items that you wear and some that you don't wear. And here's how you make a sacrifice with which animals and which not. And we're told that in the midst of that, that journey, two of the high priest's sons decided on their own to take some fire in, in an incense container, a scepter, and take it into the holy place in a way that was unauthorized. Here's how the story reads. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer put fire in it and laid incense on it. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. There's an interesting word in that phrase, and some of you may have it marked, I hope, in your Bibles from our study in the book of Leviticus. There's a phrase there. In the text that we just read, it says, they offered unholy fire. In some places, it's, it's called, they offered unauthorized fire. But my favorite translation, they offered strange fire. Strange fire. And there's been debate throughout the years, throughout the centuries, 
among scholars and rabbis as to what it means that these two sons of the high priest went in and offered strange fire. Some speculated that maybe it was strange fire because they crossed the boundary where they shouldn't have been. Some have speculated there was some maybe intra-priesthood competition, that it was kind of a power play trying to do what they were not asked to do, maybe, maybe. Some have suggested that it was because they may have been drunk, they may have been inebriated, and there was an ordinance that said do not perform the priestly functions while intoxicated by fermented drink and so on. Maybe, that might have been true. But the most compelling of all to me is the belief, and I I believe it as well, that the unauthorized fire was considered unauthorized, considered strange fire, because they created the fire in a way that was reflective of the neighbors around them, in the culture around them, to offer incense in a way that was not reflective of the way God had asked for it, but instead took it upon their themselves to create a fire from other influences rather than God. And this is what you and I can do all the time. You have been given the divine spark, the image of God imprinted on your life. But the strange fire was called strange fire because Nadab and Abihu offered a fire that wasn't from God. It didn't come from God. It wasn't blessed by God, and yet you and I do the same thing when we take this God-given spark, the divine image of God that is in us, and we fuel that spark with fuels that are not from God. Because you can take that God-given passion, that hunger, that drive, that desire, that pursuit that's in you, the divine spark, and you could feed it with ego, and you can feed it with whatever it takes to build up your own life, You can feed it with whatever it takes to get revenge over those who have harmed you. You can, because that divine image is a powerful image. That's a powerful spark. And you can fuel it with revenge and anger and deceit. You can can fuel it with whatever it's gonna take to build an image in this world that serves you. You can. And yet in the end, when we make fire from fuels that God does not intend it ends up destroying us. I might even say just to our seniors here, so some of you are gonna go to school, some of you get training, you're gonna go to college, and that's great, go do it. Go chase it down and do the thing we want you to do. We want you to go discover fire, right? But here's what you can do. You have an option. You could take that divine spark that is in you, and you can go to school or training or whatever in order to get a good degree because if you get a good degree, then you're gonna get a good job and then presumably if you get a good job, you're gonna make a lot of money and if you make a lot of money, then you can buy a lot of stuff, right? Then when you're old, you can have all this stuff around you and I can promise you, it will not be the same fire because I meet people all the time who have used the fire that God has put in them to build their own lives and at the end, still don't feel the heat of the fire of God or the light of the fire of God because they have fueled it with something less than what God has intended you to feel. See, God has put in each of us some gift, some ability, some hunger, some passion that is intended to be the fuel, the log that you throw on the fire. And when you discover that thing for which you want to be alive, 
and that matches with the spark that gives you life, then it becomes a magnificent flame that you, that you shine forth in the world. You remember at the beginning of this series, I said that the second century bishop, Irenaeus of Lyon, said that the glory of God is a human being who was fully alive. If you discover that thing that makes you fully alive, God has placed that in your life and around your life so that it can be matched with a spark of God that could burst into flame and purpose and calling. Calling. It was Frederick Buechner, we've said it again and again during our mobilization emphasis, Frederick Buechner is the one who said that your calling is where your deepest gladness and the world's deep need meet. And you could take that gladness and become a nurse, you could become a, a, a teacher, you, you, you can become an artist, a songwriter, a filmmaker, you can, you can run a lab, you could serve tables, you can manage a factory, you could work in a factory, but wherever you go, whatever your location or vocation, if you discover that thing for which you were made and you fuel the spark of God with it, and your life will be ablaze for the glory of God. You're like, well, what if I don't know what that thing is? What if I don't know my passion and I don't know what it is that is intended to fuel this fire of God in me? I say to you what Thomas Merton said, that sometimes I don't always please God, but my desire to please God pleases God. Sometimes the fuel is simply the pursuit of it. And in your hungering and thirsting and pursuing of the fuel that God has put in your life, when you find it, that ignites into a, a glorious flame. And I don't know who it was, John Wesley or George Whitfield, who during the great revivals of the 17th and 18th century, someone said, how is it that you gather such large crowds? Why do they come? And his answer was this. It's because I'm on fire and they just come to watch me burn. And I'm telling you, my sisters and brothers, your life was intended to be a fire for all the world to see burn. And when they see in you a flame of passion that brings glory to God, then they will, they will come from far away because a good fire draws in those who are cold. A good fire draws in those who are walking in darkness. And that is our call. It, it does. It takes a spark, but you already have that. It takes fuel, and God has placed it already all around you. But it takes one more thing. You got to let the air get to it. You can't keep a fire if you smother it. That's how we put fires out. We cover things up with it. Take the oxygen out of the equation. You gotta let the air get to it. Sometimes your flame can be extinguished by smothering it and not letting it breathe. I'm reminded of one of the great scenes of one of the great films of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks stars in this film, Castaway. Remember, and he's, he's shipwrecked on this island and he's having to go through. It's almost like watching his individual life is like watching technological evolution happen. Because he, he tries to build this fire and he's doing everything he can. He, he does the, the thing with the sticks, he rubs pieces of wood together, he does everything and nothing's working. He's already injured his foot, now he cuts his hand, he's so angry, he takes the thing and he just throws it against the wall. 
When he calms down, he comes back, picks it back up to try because he's got to get some food. He's tired of eating raw fish. He's got to cook something and he tries it again. Unbeknownst to him, the piece of wood that he was using to make the fire had cracked. And now the air could get to it. And it begins to smolder and, and begins to burst and combust into flame. And he's shocked. He turns and tells his new friend, Wilson, the air got to it. The air got to it. And I'm telling you, if you want your life to blaze with the fire of God, you got to let the air get to it. You're like, what do you mean by that? I mean, you got to fan this thing. You got to fan into flame the thing that is in you. It doesn't happen on its own. The air's got to get to it. There's this amazing story in the New Testament of a, a, little, uh, a young man named Timothy. An amazing story where this young man, he has a mother who's a Christian. He has a grandmother who's a Christian. And he's raised in this awareness that, that Christ is everything. When Paul meets him, Paul takes him under his wing, becomes a mentor to him. Timothy is his name. And Timothy is on fire and he's working with Paul and they're serving and they're witnessing and they're, they're sharing the gospel with all the world. And then Paul is in prison now and it's been some time. And over the years, Timothy's flame begins to flicker. It begins to fade. And Paul hears about it. And Paul writes a letter. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, we hear these words. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And then these words: So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Fan into flame this thing that is in you. I love the way he describes it. You have to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Do you hear the assumption that Paul is making? It's a gift that you didn't create. It didn't come from you. It's like a, like a treasure in clay jars. We have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made known that this magnificent gift comes from God does not belong to us. He says to Timothy, this thing is in you, but you gotta fan this thing into flame. If you want your life to blaze with meaning and purpose, and if you want your life to glorify God with the fire that is in you, you gotta fan it into flame. Well, how do you fan it? You fan it in two ways. First, you connect with others who are on fire. Because fire begets fire, heat begets heat, light begets light. And if you find your flame flickering, it's time to connect with others whose fire has been stoked. Like the old man who at the end of his life had lost everyone, his wife had gone on to be with the Lord, the kids had moved away, they never call. Eventually he had no real motivation to get up and go. He didn't go to the cafe with his friends anymore. He didn't go to church. He stopped coming to Sunday school and, and the pastor and the church were concerned about him and the pastor came to pay a visit to him in the dead of winter and it's cold outside and he knocks on the door and he hears a voice that says, it's open. He opens the door and walks in to find the old man in a rocking chair in front of a fireplace, a glowing fire, the 
pastor says nothing. He just comes in, takes his coat off, hangs his coat up, his hat up, pulls a seat over beside him and just sits to watch the fire. They sit there for an hour and they say nothing. Eventually, the pastor took the poker from the hearth and he reached into the fire and pulled out just a single charcoal, just a single ember and pulled it to the edge of the hearth away from the fire and just sat there and watched it. And in time, the red hot glow went away. It became ashy gray, cool. Without saying a word, he took the poker and slowly poked it back into the fire. And when it got near the other embers, it combusted in flame and now red hot again because fire begets fire and light begets light and heat begets heat. Well, without saying a word, he put the fire poker up, he put his coat back on, he got his hat and he headed to the door. And before he left, the old man said, good sermon, pastor. I'll see you Sunday. To fan your flame into flame requires being with others who are on fire because in time theirs will dim too and they will need you. But the second thing it takes in order to fan the spark that is in you into flame, it takes taking a risk for Christ. You know, last week I told you that our younger generations, we are told, are leaving the institutional expressions of church in droves, and we know why. All the people who study us tell us why. Pew, Barna, uh, Gallup, uh, the Public Religion Research Institute, and we know why. They list like six common reasons, among them all the things that they think the church is against. Anti-science, anti-gay, anti-intellectualism, anti-anti-anti-anti. But among all of the reasons that are listed, the one common theme that I find most provocative, most compelling to me, is that one of the greatest reasons younger generations leave the church is because they find it too safe. Too safe. Because we have convinced ourselves that if, if we're gonna keep our kids in church, we gotta have the best programs, they gotta have fun, they gotta be really happy. As long as we can keep our kids happy when they're this high, well, then they'll be happy here, and then when they're happy at college and beyond, well, they'll just still be happy. You know, there's lots of happy. And what we are finding is that they are graduating and they are saying, thanks, we were happy, yeah. But it's just not that compelling anymore. If we want to retain the faith for a whole new generation. We have to teach them how to risk. This is hard. And Paul said to Timothy, in his letter, he didn't send to him a letter that said, hey, it's all gonna be okay. It's all be over soon. Relax. Hey, I got this. This prison's not that bad. I got three squares a day. He didn't say any of that. This is what he said. Look, he said, join with me in suffering for the gospel, for the power of God. When will we begin to trust God enough to introduce our young to the struggle of faith. Because if we teach them to struggle and to suffer for the cause of Christ, it will make their flame burn hot. Because when you're in a crisis and you're not sure the outcome, you depend on God in those seasons in ways like you never depend on God before. Yes. In fact, can I, I know the hour is upon us. But I want to give you one example. 
my two knuckleheads are here from college, which means a couple of things. My house looks and smells like a dorm room. Thanks, guys. But the other is this. I've told the deacons, told some of you that tomorrow morning they get on a plane and they're going to spend two months in Southeast Asia serving a community there, a village. Now, it's not a war zone, but it's not risk-free. And I'm not anxiety-free about it. But I ask you to pray for them, pray for their mother, pray for me while you have a little prayer left. But isn't this the point, though? I'm incredibly proud of you two guys for for saying yes to something that you don't know the complete outcome to. You don't know where this is going to go. But isn't that the point? To fan into flame the spark that is in you means you got to sometimes step out in faith. You got to sometimes take a risk. It was, don't forget, Bonhoeffer, who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and shed all comforts and securities. Come and risk. And in that risking, you will find a flame. I think about our martyrs, our sisters and brothers of the earliest first and second century, who when they were martyred, burning at the stake, they were heard singing hymns because they were consumed by a fire and a heat and a light that was in them that burned brighter and hotter than the fire that was outside them. Maybe today you're at a place when you recognize that your flame is beginning to flicker and you understand you want your life to be purposeful. You want your life to matter. And I'm telling you, you have everything you need right now. You've got the spark of God in in you. You were born with it. The world didn't give it to you and the world can't snuff it out. And you've got the fuel for it to pursue the passion that God has put in front of you to be alive in him by doing and being what God has made you to do and to be. But you gotta, you gotta fan that 